You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Let's say China. 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 everyone welcome to another great episode of reconsider part of the agora podcast network where we don't do the thinking for you and in classic reconsider style i have a bit of a oopsie from the last episode not that we oopsie a lot but confessing it is our thing so in our last episode about nationalism it talked about the united states as sort of the glaring exception to ethnicity as nationalism or ethnicity as national identity and saying yeah isn't it great america And then I forgot, having spent three years in our wonderful neighborly northern buddies, Canada, I just forgot to add them to the list. And of course, Canada is another huge example of national identity, not as ethnicity. In fact, Canada is more ethnically diverse than the United States and arguably has fewer like multi-ethnic integration issues historically and currently. So sorry, Canada. I know that's your favorite word and good work on being, you know, not all about your ethnic (laughs) identity and having a really cool concept of national identity, which is also very different from the United States concept of national identity because it's much less about like revolution and freedom. It's its own kettle of fish and a really cool place. Love you, Canada. And then other thing before we get started is if you've been listening to Reconsider for a long time, you've heard this us plug Heather's Renaissance English History podcast before, but holy smokes, is it good? Is it fun? I, I She got me into English history for the first time because, you know, as a good red-blooded American, I'm like, ah, England, the oppressors, right? Like, they have kings and stuff, and <laughs> and they hate freedom, and... I decided to listen to her podcast in part because we like went to visit them in Spain. It was pretty cool. And we hung out and I learned just how well researched she is and just how smart she is and how fun and funny. So I finally started listening to it for serious about a year ago and it's the best Renaissance English history podcast. It's a great time. Go learn about your tutors. So with that, We are today kicking off a new series on reconsidering China, sort of like our series on reconsidering Russia, just with less alliteration. So like Russia, China has a troubled relationship with the West, and people often under 
misunderstand the causes of that troubled relationship. So we're going to try to do what we do here at Reconsider, go into some of the history, talk about some of the context, some of their geopolitical interests, and just generally discuss how the country works internally so you can get a better sense for why it's acting the way it is externally. So the first step to going over some of the misconceptions that exist out there in common narratives is just to set some of them up and go at them one by one. So before we do that, I'll just remind everyone, if you're listening to whatever episode this is, 60-something now, and you've gotten something out of the Reconsider podcast, we sure would appreciate a review on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you happen to use. Helps us get out to more people. And yeah, that'd be swell. We do read them. We take them always as, you know, real good feedback and, you know, a couple trickle in every week. So it's a nice Sunday afternoon treat for us. So thank you to everyone who has left them. Now on to China. China, of course, so hot right now. And why is that? Well, first, Xi Jinping has set himself up as probably the most powerful leader in China since maybe Mao or Deng Xiaoping. The guy has tons of control over the state. And we've talked actually a little bit about this in some previous episodes, so we won't go too deeply into it. But C is running the show with a iron fist and a velvet glove. And, you know, there's actually there's something maybe strangely attractive about it. You know, you can sort of say like, well, at least their system is coherent. And, you know, the U.S. or the West are like kind of falling apart and there's internal divisions ripping apart Europe, ripping apart the United States. And China seems to be, you know, marching in lockstep, which, you know, it's I'll just I'll have an aside. That's what people said about Italy and Germany in the early 1930s. Just saying. But China has not devolved into becoming, you know, after 60 years of communism has not devolved into trying to you know, take over all of the continent and murder everyone. So good on you, China. And they're like form of centralized capitalism where you have a capitalist system that's like guided and run by the state to a large extent, like seems to be working pretty well. You know, the growth rate is good. It doesn't go through recessions the way that Western economies do. Maybe there's something to it. And of course, now we have a trade war and apparently it's going to be easy and we're going to win. Apparently China doesn't think so. And we're all tariffing each other now. So that's exciting. And then, of course, as always, there's North Korea and China's weird relationship with North Korea and the United States and basically all of its neighbors that the United States cares about. Strange relationships, kind of frenemies is a common word. It's a weird, weird place with respect to how we normally think about the West, a Western country's relationship with another country. And so there's a lot to unpack. I'll use this as an opportunity to get to know your host a little bit better. Throughout this episode, you'll hear Eric pronouncing Chinese names with much greater finesse and accuracy than I can. And that's because Eric actually speaks a little bit of Mandarin. Yo, Isue. <laughs> I assume that means yes, totally. Uh, it means a little bit. Yo, okay. Isue. And yeah, I studied Chinese for uh, eight years. I actually got my minor in Chinese. East Asian studies at MIT. I worked for Professor M. Taylor Fravel for a while on his book, which I'm actually going to be citing a lot in this. And I spent four months in China. So I, I actually, it's hard not to like tell you what I think about China, but 
I do have like a lot of kind of insider information, at least, you know, for for your average run of the mill, like white dude living in East Coast United States. Uh, So, yes, you know, those those pronunciations will be not bad. So digging into the meat, what are some of the misconceptions about China? And some of these will be less complete misconceptions than just a narrative that's not always fully fleshed out. So just that caveat. One that comes up a lot is this idea that China is becoming this massive power and could therefore, in some amount of time, just completely beat the U.S. in a war. And right now, that it just, it just depends on what you mean by war, right? As far as military capability and technology, right now the U.S. is still completely unrivaled, even by China. China is gradually beginning to build some aircraft carriers, although they don't really have the deep operating experience in order to run sort of a a fleet from the water as the U.S. does, presumably over time, that'll change a little bit. But then, of course, there's the question of whether or not aircraft carriers are even going to be like a really powerful weapon system in 20 years because of, you know, precision guided missiles and all that stuff. But aside from that, the point is the U.S. is still further ahead, spends a lot more money on technology and defense every year. And has generally had a more active military than China has over the last four decades or so, at least since 1979, right? Which is when they went to war with Vietnam. That said, as General Douglas MacArthur said back in the day, you know, don't get into a land war on mainland Asia. And that's because the U.S. just doesn't have enough people to actually go to, say, China and permanently occupy the country. So when you talk about wars, quote-unquote wars, and who can quote-unquote win them, you kind of have to think about what winning means. And I think that's something that's lost in this narrative a lot. You know, would the U.S. have to occupy China in order to win a war? Because if so, that'd be very difficult. We've seen that. The U.S. generally doesn't have popular will to occupy large territories unless it's like a major total war. And even then, like Japan is much smaller than China. Not been a good track record lately, guys. Not been a good track record. Yeah, for reals. But uh, if the war is just we need to basically blockade China in collaboration with our allies in the Pacific Rim, that's a different story because that is something that the U.S. has the capability to do and it wouldn't take as much direct conflict, probably. Yeah, I'm actually quick digression. Just the idea of aircraft carriers being obsolete in 20 years is at once horrifying and also very exciting. And I actually remember reading George Freeman's The Next 100 Years, which I believe was released in 2000 or just about, or maybe just after 9-11. But as he like imagined or sort of projected out like technological advancements over the next 100 years, one of the things he talked about was, look, really small hypersonic guided missiles that can like duck, duck, dodge, dive and dodge can. Sorry, I was trying to quote dodgeball there. (laughs) Dodge, duck, dive, dip, and dodge. There we go. The five Ds. But, you know, hypersonic missiles that can do that will just be like, oh, cute. Someone's sending an aircraft carrier my way. I'm 3,000 miles away. Fire a missile. Okay, it's gone. Great. And the I think, like, the most absurd form of the China can beat the United States thing is, like, well, they have 1.4 billion people, and they could just send them all in boats. It's like, yeah, but the Pacific Ocean is very, 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 very big. It's, in fact, the biggest thing on Earth period. And those boats ain't going to make it over to the other side. So, yeah, I mean, if at the end of the day, if the United States like 
got into a conflict with China over, say, the South China Sea, which probably would be the most likely place for a conflict anytime soon, even more likely than Taiwan, which we'll get to in a second. You know, if, if it was about the United States exerting free access to the sea in the South China Sea versus China, like China would not fare well. It just doesn't have the Blue Water Navy or Air Force capable of doing that. So long story short, U.S. far superior Air Force and Navy, and we'll have that for the foreseeable future, which means if it comes down to military conflict, you know, the United States could probably bottle up China on its own borders. And if you're interested in reading that book, The Next Hundred Years, it's actually published in 09, a little bit more recent ah. than, than that. But definitely check it out. Uh, b- you know, blatant pitch for uh, George Friedman's my boss. So, you know, fully transparent there. It's still a good read. Next Hundred Years, check it out. And for me, it's a very genuine pitch. I read that book before I even knew who George Freeman was. I got it as like a graduation gift, and it was just really good. So long story short on the China could beat the U.S. in a war narrative is it's complicated, but the U.S. currently has a far superior Air Force and Navy, a more experienced military. And that means that if it did come down to a military conflict, the U.S. could blockade China, most likely. That is, unless China is able to split off U.S. allies from from the alliance structure, but that's sort of something we'll come to in a little bit. Whew. All right. Another common misconception, and we have already talked about this, so we'll keep it very short, is China owns most of the United States debt and therefore has a lot of power over the United States and can manipulate in some way. Eh, just not true. I know we don't tell you what to think, but this one's just a fact. Like, it owns less than 5% of U.S. debt total. It's just, you know... It would be a headache if China was like, yeah, we're just going to sell all of our debt or not renew it. Uh, And it would also be terrible for China's economy. And it's one of those like, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face sort of dealios. And therefore, like that power is just very fundamentally limited. If you need to get a refresher on that, go to the national debt episode from, I think, two episodes ago. Yeah, we talked about it in depth. What a strange expression. Cut off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. I'm glad I don't live in a time when those sorts of expressions were more commonplace. Yeah, I'm, I'm the only person I'm thinking of is Van Gogh, although it was his ear. And now, of course, I'm thinking about Tyrion Lannister, who lost his nose in the Battle of Blackwater. But of course, in the show, it just becomes a super cool scar, you know, makes Peter Dinklage like even more handsome and rugged and manly. And it's just not fair. Like, he's supposed to be ugly now, and he's not. He's just too hot for to be a true Tyrion Lannister. But anyway, digression over. So wait, no, it's not. I I have to digress a little bit further. Sorry. You'll have to forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) This is all going to tie together. You see, just follow me for 30 seconds. Do you know what game of Thrones is based off of in a general sense? Is it the York and Lancaster civil war in England? War of the Roses. That's what it is. Yeah. The War of the Roses, 15th century, which you want to learn a little bit more about that. Again, check out the podcast of the month, Renaissance English History Podcast by Heather Tesco. I don't know which episode this is on, but what got Game of Thrones sparked. It's good. Bonus points if you figure out who in Game of Thrones is Richard II. Answers in a postcard, please. Top prize is a name recognition on the next episode. All right. What's our next point, Eric? Uh, China is expansionist and wants to take over Asia. So... Even if China does not have its ambitions on sending a a fleet of fishing vessels to the United States to invade California, my God, they're going to invade everyone else, you know, Korea, 
Taiwan. Again, we'll get to Taiwan, Japan, Vietnam, whatever. And or what's led to this? Well, to some extent, China, you know, territorial occupation of, say, Xinjiang in the northwest and Tibet in the southwest is something that is not really contended in any serious legal way, but certainly contended in a moral way where China goes, oh, no, these have always been a part of China, always and forever, always. And people go like, well, like, no, not really. Like Tibet's and Xinjiang were like pretty independent for a long time. And didn't they kick your butt in a few wars? And China goes, well, it was a really long time ago. They're ours now. And they don't really want to be part of China. And so there is this like, you know, sense of kind of the the expansionist period of or a seemingly expansionist period of China right after the civil war when China was like locking down its borders. And this is a place in particular where Taylor Fravel's book was it strong borders, secure nation is, is able to tell a lot more about this phenomenon and what China is specifically looking for. But here's the short version. So one, China hasn't made any claims on territory of, you know, like Vietnam or India or et cetera, that it hadn't made in the 1950s. So after the communists took over China, they kind of said, look, based on, you know, this like convoluted historical argument, these are our borders. They're here and that's it. And actually, it did include territory in the South China Sea, even back in the 50s and 60s. Again, see Taylor Frable's book on this. I actually contributed to some of the research specifically on South China Sea island claims in the 1960s and 70s as a summer internship. So there we go. I was like, I was like reading English versions of the People's Daily and all sorts of stuff. It was pretty cool and like helping make a map. So there's like a little map in there. And that was my that was like kind of my thing. But so long story short is that as far as territory in East Asia, China has been very consistent since the 50s about what it claims. It's had a hard line. And we'll talk about China's history in another episode. But one of the part of the thesis of Fravel's book is that for China, the idea of giving an inch anywhere is like anathema because it's a very legalist style system. And if you know Chinese history, you know, there's like legalism versus Confucianism. China right now is very legalist, not very Confucianist. And so for them, like, look, we of course we have to stay firm on our borders because we're making the claim that they're immutable and nobody can touch our borders. And if they do, if they get anywhere close, we are just going to freak out and go after them. And this is the uh, this is what caused the war between China and India in the 1960s. So there's a strong case to be made that China actually has an incentive not to make claims outside of what it's made claims about for the past 60 years, because it is so kind of paranoid about people encroaching on it that it's not going to change those territorial claims. But what about kind of hegemony over East Asia, even if it doesn't want to take it over? So the United States obviously is is like the preeminent force in East Asia beyond China's like immediate territorial waters, right? Japan essentially outsources its defense to the United States. South Korea, while it wants to have a good relationship with both the U.S. and China, guess what? It's American troops and not Chinese troops in South Korea. Vietnam, despite the fact that the United States, you know, kind of waged a brutal war in Vietnam for over a decade, loves the United States and sees the United States as a critical partner to challenging China. And then Taiwan, again, I promise we'll get to it. Taiwan also 
has a number of times allowed the United States to roll in a couple of aircraft carriers just to remind China that, like, maybe you shouldn't send troops after Taiwan. And so China knows that right now the United States is too powerful to completely topple its role in East Asia, much less, you know, the international system. You know, the United States, even in the global financial system, has a lot of power in how it built the World Bank, the IMF, etc. What does China want? Well, China wants greater access to foreign markets because it's a very export-driven economy, and it wants to force these like Western-built and Western-backed financial institutions to compete with those of its own. And China's own pursue distinct interests like that are very different from the ones that the Western financial institutions do. So for example, instead of making funding contingent on a spat of liberalizing government reforms, China's financial institutions don't tie economic deals to political status. And the West critiques them for this. Many African countries don't, and some do. Point is, it just works differently. Yeah, so China does have some desires to be more globally powerful, to influence multilateral institutions to a greater degree, and basically just to get what it wants more often. But that doesn't mean that China thinks it has the ability to basically topple the US as a power, right? That said, China does want to drive a wedge between the US and some of its Pacific allies. The geographic threat to China that is posed to it by the Pacific Rim countries on China's eastern coast is fairly substantial because they could band together in collaboration with the United States to blockade China, either to prevent imports such as oil or other precious commodities or inputs to manufactured goods that it needs or exports that, you know, it doesn't depend on exports like it did 10 years ago, but it's still something like 20% of China's GDP is still exports. So that could pose a real problem to China. And the geography, again, makes that fairly easy to do because there is, if you look at a map, a string of islands basically from this, the southern tip of Japan all the way down around to Singapore and, and the Malacca Straits, which is where a, a very small passage through which a lot of trade travels. And that makes that you know, particularly easy to blockade as well. So if China can peel away those Pacific Rim allies from the US, then potentially it can gain better control of its economic lifeline, access to its eastern Pacific coast. And how could it do that? Well, potentially, if China can show all of its Pacific neighbors that U.S. security guarantees are basically useless, and I'm not saying U.S. security guarantees are useless, I'm saying if this is something that China can demonstrate in a way that's successful, then that might make Vietnam or Singapore or the Philippines kind of reconsider their alliances. Now, China has been trying to do this mainly with money so far. And Philippines is, is a great example because if it can turn Philippines, then that's a whole area that it, it can begin shipping through to get to the Pacific Ocean, which begins to matter. But the Philippines is the head of the country, Duterte, has been going out and saying nasty things about the US back and forth, back and forth. China's great. We're going to do all this stuff. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when Philippines province of Mindanao was threatened by ISIS, the Philippines went to the U.S. for security support because they didn't want Chinese troops on their soil. 
And despite a disagreement over this little island off of the western coast of the Philippines, Scarborough Shoal, in which China supposedly claimed like not to encroach too much, they basically have. And the Philippines has been like, what the hell, guys? Like we told you, but you know, we realized that there's nothing we can do about it. So right now, even with Duterte's sort of back and forth and criticizing and demonizing the U.S., still heavily dependent on the U.S. for security support. Yep. In the words of Barack Obama, in response to the Russians who were claiming that the United States were expansionist because of all the bases we had in the world, he said, uh, when there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? <laughs> Ghostbusters. That's not actually his quote. But he basically he did say, like, you know, when shit goes down, who does the world call? Right. It's not Russia. It's the United States. And that's how East Asia has been going. And this is this is a threat for China, not just because of the potential economic you know, stranglehold that U.S. allies could put on China. But and we're going to go into the history of the, the modern history of China. Thank goodness only that, because there's a whole podcast for that. And we'll be bringing him in to help us with this part. It's Chris Stewart. He's great. Go listen to History of China podcast. But when we talk about the modern history of China, when China has been dominated by other countries brutally, I may add, it's always come from the sea, right? It's never come from the West, from the North. It's always come from the sea in the East. And so China is, China looks just like Russia looks at this like ring of NATO countries from like Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, down to Poland and Bulgaria going like, wow, that's like a ring of enemies who explicitly have a treaty about us being their enemy. China looks at South Korea, Japan, kind of Taiwan, the Philippines, and even to some extent Vietnam going like, wow, there's this ring of countries that are like American security dependents and allies that, you know, allow the that have tons of American air force and military bases and naval bases that allow the United States, if it wanted to, to just kind of come kicking our door down. It's a scary look. And so, of course, China has aims to weaken that alliance and weaken the presence of the United States in East Asia so close to China's front door. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's, that's true, except for the Mongols, right? Oh, because yeah. the Mongols invaded China. From, but that was, I mean, Mongolia is not going to invade China anytime soon. Good point. Mongolia is an exception. And to be fair, like if we look at Tibet, if you look at like very old Chinese history, there are invasions from Tibet, but Tibet's now part of China. And a lot of the invasions from Mongolia, actually, most of the places that used to invade China. So like Xinjiang, 
Tibet, Inner Mongolia, Southern, like very Southern China. Those, all those places are now just part of China. So China has like done a pretty good job of going like, oh yeah, you invaded us. So like now you're part of China now, right? Everyone's like, oh yeah, sure. Sounds good. Except for the, like the Tibetans and the Xinjiangs, but like the Mongolians that invaded, like they just became Chinese. It's like, okay, cool. And the part of Mongolia was left. Yeah. became like pretty weak. Yeah. Wasn't there like a whole division within like Kublai Khan's Khanate that, that asserted that he was getting too Chinese eyes or whatever the cynicized. Yeah. But anyways, we're, this is not a show on the Mongols, which maybe we should do at some point. I don't know. I don't know enough about the history of Mongolia. Anyways, back to China. Does China want to take the U S down then? I, I mean, this is a narrative that exists out there, right? Again, China would like more flexibility in how it conducts its foreign policy. It feels constrained and it has been constrained to varying degrees over the last 180 years, basically since the Opium Wars. But right now, at least, China still depends heavily on the U.S. as an export market, not exclusively, but in large part. So it it all comes back to that cutting your nose off expression, right? Cut your nose to spite your face. It would be really difficult for China to do something that actually severely crippled the U.S. economy right now, because then it would also cripple the Chinese economy. Well, there we go. So I know we promised repeatedly to talk about Taiwan. Let's talk about Taiwan. So misconception number X, China wants to take over Taiwan. The answer to this one is actually yes and no. The reason it's definitely no is that if if you go to China, you'll hear people just say like Taiwan is part of China. And if you go to Taiwan, most people in Taiwan will say Taiwan is part of China. And this is actually surprising for a lot of Westerners. So let's let's talk about what Taiwan is and isn't and talk about the history. So Taiwan, what is it? Is it a nation? Absolutely not. Has it ever tried to be an independent nation? Absolutely not. Taiwan is an island. The government that operates out of Taipei is the Republic of China, not the Republic of Taiwan, the Republic of China, like the whole thing. So how did that happen? Well, quick history. Taiwan was just a Chinese island. Now, before World War II, most of the people in Taiwan were like pretty ethnically different from the Chinese, but they'd like been part of the Chinese empire for quite some time. Uh, Not always, but that's the case of much of China. But, uh, you know, for a long time, Taiwan was part of China. Then the Japanese showed up and occupied it. It was awful. Then the Japanese left. Then the Chinese had a civil war between the communists and the nationalists, actually the second civil war. The nationalists did basically the worst job fighting that war that they could possibly do, and they lost. They retreated to Taiwan where they had just enough water between them and the communists to hold out. And that government, that nationalist government, became a government in in exile, right? The Republic of China. And so their official claim was, is, and always has been that they are the legitimate government of all of China, Taiwan and the mainland together. In Beijing, the communist government claims to be the legitimate government of all of China, Taiwan and the mainland together. And in fact, the Taipei government, the Republic of China, was officially recognized by the United Nations, again, set up by the West, until the 1970s as the legitimate government of all of China, until Nixon and Kissinger flipped the tables and got the world to recognize reality that now, now the communists are really in charge. If you want to deal with China, you need to deal with Beijing. So again, Taiwan, not an independent country, 
has never tried to be. Now, do people, do some people in Taiwan want to be an independent nation? And the answer is yes, definitely some do. There is an independence movement in Taiwan. And one of the reasons that Taiwan is a fairly free and prosperous society and China is a semi-totalitarian dictatorship. And generally people who live in free societies aren't interested in being taken over by a semi-totalitarian dictatorship. Great. So an independence party gained popularity in the 1990s and 2000s, bolstered by Clinton sending two aircraft carriers to the Straits of Taiwan when China was rattling sabers about Taiwan and taking it back. But that movement has actually since lost a fair amount of popularity. And right now, the government of Taiwan generally tends towards the idea of maintaining the status quo as long as possible, which is, you know, this kind of ambiguous state where like, yeah, we're totally the government of all of China and having warm, in particular, trade relations with the mainland so that trade flourishes and they're not kind of like blockaded by their biggest trading partner, the mainland. And so when someone says Taiwan is a part of China, basically they're spot on. As we discussed, some other territories such as Tibet, actually a very different story, very different people, a lot more desire for independence there, but they sorely lack the means to make it happen. Taiwan, if it really wanted to become independent, would have a few paths. Actually, one, it would be, hey, United States, if China attacked us, would you defend us? I actually wrote a paper on this, and I can link it. Other interesting trivia that comes from that. So the reason why so many Chinatowns in the United States speak primarily Cantonese rather than Mandarin and have a particular kind of like food is that the people who got to escape the the onslaught of the communists were the people who lived in Guangdong. So Guangdong is where Cantonese comes from. And so their food and culture and language was the one that like left China in exile in droves in the 60s or in the 50s and 60s. And a lot of them came to the United States. So Guangdong culture is here. And that's why you don't find General Cao's chicken in Beijing because it's a Guangdong kind of food. So there you go. I actually didn't know that. Interesting. Now, now you do. See, even even I learn new things from our podcast, Eric. In the middle of the show. In the middle of the show. It's great. <laughs> so the, the, the next thing that's worth talking about is... Chinese North Korean relations. And the common narrative here is China is an ally of North Korea. And this is kind of true. Kind of. Uh, it is to really understand or re- rather to evaluate this claim and this narrative in greater detail, we, we need to think about the geography of the North Korean Chinese border a little bit. Now, historically, Unified Korea, before it was split into two countries following World War II, has generally been antagonistic of China. Because once unified, the entire Korean peninsula is able to draw on far greater resources and manpower in a way that is threatening to China. And in fact, the Koreans kicked the Chinese butts in a few wars when China kept going like, oh, Korea, you should be part of China. The Koreans are like, no, whack, a couple times. It's, it has not worked out well for the Chinese. Now, today, China benefits from a North Korean state as a buffer state because the U.S., as Eric mentioned, has troops in South Korea. It's about 37,000 unless they've reduced troop levels recently, but it's, it's tens of thousands. There are talks to decrease them, but it hasn't really happened yet. And this is a result of the Korean War in the early 50s. And the reason that China got involved in the Korean War 
was because the U.S. was doing too too good, and they pushed far north, crossed the Yalu River, and the Chinese were like, nah, we, we know you say you're just going to war with North Korea, but it seems like you're pretty close to our southern borders, so whack, which is apparently what counteroffensive and war sound like on the Reconsider podcast. Whack. And China delivered the United States its worst land defeat in history by sneaking down through the mountains and then flooding out along to the sea where the United States troops were like stretched out. It was awful. It was a butchering. Right. And those troops, not those troops, but the U.S. still has troops in South Korea because the the Korean War never ended. Technically, there's an armistice, which they stopped shooting at each other. So. China wants that buffer space with at least a friendly country between it and U.S. forces in South Korea and South Korea itself. Now, China doesn't control North Korea. And I think the way that a lot of news is written makes it seem like that is the case. China certainly has some influence on North Korea in large part because North Korea receives a lot of its oil from China. And that's sort of a critical lifeline in order to sustain its military, right? If North Korea could no longer get oil, then like all of its defense calculations would go out the window because it couldn't defend itself. So China has influence over North Korea, but it really doesn't control. Xi does not control Kim Jong-un. And that is something that we've seen throughout the the ordeal, especially in, in the middle and, and early parts of last year, when uh, President Trump would basically go to Xi and say, okay, well, you know, Go, go get some concessions from North Korea and we'll give you some concessions. And like, usually nothing really happened. And that's because North Korea is a different state and Kim Jong-un and the North Korean regime has different security interests than do China. China also doesn't want North Korea to collapse, though. So in that sense, the North Korean regime and China do have interests that align. This is the case because if North Korea were to collapse, it would result in really massive refugee flows northward as well as probably, again, U.S. and South Korean occupation of North Korea in order to try to stabilize the situation, which China doesn't want. And that is in part why China keeps providing lifelines to North Korea. It doesn't want sanctions to bite as hard as the West does. Yeah, you know that saying, we're full of sayings today, but you know that saying, holding a wolf by the ears? Like, what do you do when you hold a wolf by the ears? You keep holding on, right? And so to some extent, China is stuck with North Korea because it, no matter how irritating, well, not no matter, but like to a large extent, no matter how irritating North Korea gets, China can't just go like, all right, forget it. You're on your own. Wither and die on me because it would be an absolute disaster for China. Absolute. So anyways, on this particular narrative, I think we can walk away with sort of a couple of helpful perspectives to frame the issue, one of which is, in the short run, China and North Korea definitely do have some interests that align. They both want North Korea to stick around for a while and for the North Korean regime to remain intact, not to collapse, and to keep U.S. troops out of North Korea. In the long run, though, and this is definitely getting into a bit more speculation, but given the trends of history, we can still say some a couple of informed things about it, which is China doesn't really want a unified Korea again on its southern border. And in the long run, the North has repeatedly said, basically since the 1950s, that its goal is to reunify the peninsula. Of course, that would be under a regime led by the North. So in some sense, North Korea ultimately wants a unified peninsula and China does not. 
So here's an example of how two countries can have interests that work out in the short run, but not the long run. And that's just an interesting thing to think about generally whenever you're looking at international news. Think about how and why countries are working together right now and whether those are deep, long-term alignments of interests or whether things can change. All right. Reconsider. Oh, yeah. So, so next misconception. China has set up a fairly dystopian system in which your rights as a citizen depend on the government's perception of your loyalty to the state. So this one isn't true because, oh, wait, no. No, this one is actually super duper true, and it's pretty messed up. And it's especially true in the non-Han parts of China, such as Xinjiang, which is that Uyghur Northwest area. So, you know, like the stories coming out of that place are often pretty scary. Chinese security agents will follow Uyghurs who leave the country, sometimes hold their families hostage, and force expats to basically act as information collectors for them. And for... For everyone else that's not part of this like kind of brutally suppressed area, the there is a social credit system. So here in capitalist America, you have credit score, and it's based on you know how what's your history been of repaying your debts, and therefore how easy is it for you to get money at a good rate in the future? Because hopefully, past behavior is a predictor of future behavior. In China, there's a social credit system, and, and C has helped put it in place. And basically, if you screw up, it gets in the way of your ability to do anything that you would need to do. So, for example, if you have a low social credit score, you cannot get on a plane or a train. You get your internet cut off. Your kids cannot go to good schools. You are not allowed to get certain jobs. You cannot stay at certain hotels. You get publicly shamed by the government. Alternatively, there is a carrot to this. If you have good credit scores, you get those better jobs. And you even get your, if you're on a dating site in China or certain dating sites in China, your profile gets boosted if you have a good social credit score, making it easier for you to find that love of your life. So keep the government happy and they will, one, not ruin your life and two, might even help you out a little bit. And how do you gain or lose credit? It's actually kind of a mystery. So that has always confused me. It's sort of like the, what's the Dr. Strangelove quote? Like, why would you have a doomsday deterrent device if you're not going to tell anyone? Right? So like, how do you have, how do you like effectively control people's behavior if you don't tell them what behaviors get them the nice things and the terrible things from the government? But there are some public examples. If you bad driving, smoking where you're not allowed to smoke, buying too many video games. Posting what the government considers, quote, fake news, which, you know, given how fake news is thrown around, is pretty much just criticizing the government generally or not towing the line. Right. But, you know, as a whole, this exact methodology is a secret. But yes, what's going on in China right now is the government has decided that it's going to track your every behavior and it's going to adjust your rights. I mean, privileges accordingly based on how good a citizen you're being. Isn't that nice? It is nice. I promise that I will not post any fake news. Yes, only good, true news about Xi Jinping and glorious communist government. It is quite glorious. Quite glorious. That is a fact. Yes. Another, another point, another common narrative is the idea that China is a currency manipulator and therefore cheats in international trade by artificially lowering the value of its currency so it can export more. This is a very... 
in-depth issue that we're pro I mean, we could probably do a whole episode on this. We should. We should do a whole episode on this. It's a great idea. But the takeaway is that China has more control over its currency than many other countries, but it still kind of floats and it kind of sometimes doesn't artificially cheapen its currency. In fact, much of last year, China was trying to bolster the strength of its currency by actually selling treasuries and other US foreign reserves that it had because it was fearful of capital outflows. So China definitely influences the value of its currency. Sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's another, but it's hard to tell, you know, to what degree sometimes, because frankly, the rules for there's like this auto adjustment mechanism, I forget the exact word for it that they talk about, but exactly how that works is not publicly available information. Yeah. And, you know, the United States, whenever it decides to print gob of money, changes its relative currency value to other currencies. This is not to necessarily say that China always plays by the rules, certainly according to like the WTO that it's part of or that it is a lover of unrestricted free trade or anything like that or that it doesn't try to like make the system work to its advantage. But holy smokes, is it complicated? And, you know, China to some extent, seems to understand that it needs to play within the rules to a certain amount. And, you know, if, if it just tried to go totally off the rails, it would not work out really well for it. So let's do an episode on China and international trade because it's a cool topic that, you know, I'm far enough out of, uh, out of touch with over the past few years that I need to do a bunch of research before I can, before I can even like share facts about what's going on. So stay tuned for a great episode on China and international trade. Yeah, there's also the whole issue of China's financial system generally, how that relates to the performance of its broader economy, and in this and in one case, particular real estate. And we again could probably do, and maybe we should do a whole episode on this. But understanding the degree of China's overall power really requires understanding what is. A rel relative fragility in its economy and financial system. And, and this is something that the Communist Party is actively working on. Um, but basically, one of the ways that China funded a lot of its growth was with debt, government spending, and a lot of this money flowed to new construction, so building new property. And a lot of this property ended up being vacant. And anyways... The point is China now needs to move away from this model of growth where they're just constantly building stuff and gradually build their private consumption base, their consumer base. And this is a difficult thing to do at all. One, because you have to strike a balance without throwing the real estate market into a spiral, which can bring much of the entire system with it. And it needs to do this while it is getting into a trade war right now with the US. So that's for another show, but also important. Ooh. This, will be, this is going to be a really fun series, I think. So, you know, the big question is, how do we better understand China? And you may ask, why do I need to understand China? That's what the folks in, you know, D.C. or London or wherever, you know, my capital are for. But hey, guess what? If 2016 tells you anything, it's that your vote matters. So we want to help you understand, you know, the, the second big largest economy, second largest population in the world, growing power, all that important stuff. Uh, we want to help you understand it as well as you can and help you have the context to be skeptical about the claims that, you know, media and politicians tend to make. 
you've heard me go on this before, but just one of the things to keep in mind about China is that China is very old, like very, very old. And it has a conception of itself as very, very old in a way that a lot of places don't. You know, so, for example, Germany, the United States, like don't think of ourselves as that old in Germany. People lived there for much longer. But Germany as a concept is, a you know, 1800s kind of concept. And China is a 5000 year old concept. And Chinese people are taught their history probably with the same loving attention that the Texans have learned theirs, except there's, you know, a hundred times as much of it. And that actually, as far as I can tell, really actually influences how Chinese people think about themselves, their country, their relationship with the world, and seems to influence Chinese policymaking and behavior as a nation on the world stage quite a bit. So, to that end, I want to make a second plug again for Chris Stewart's History of China, and we're going to try to twist his arm to get him in on our next episode to help us understand a little bit of that, you know, a tiny, tiny sliver of that history as context for understanding how China has acted through the 20th and into the 21st century and why, and maybe even understand from an historical perspective, how China is facing its current challenges in the world with the United States and its neighbors and all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. And so with that, we'd like to remind everyone, as always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off. Zaijian. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.